Hello, I'm Richard Fieldhouse and welcome to the NASGP's The Art of GP Logoing podcast. This episode was recorded live in November 2023 and is an update on asthma and phenotesting delivered by Dr. Andy Whitmore's GP partner in Portsmouth. And during the talk, Andy had uh, some PowerPoint slides which we have available in the show notes as both uh, either as a YouTube video or as an actual download of the PowerPoint notes themselves. But it actually works very well without the PowerPoint presentation. And and just listening to this on its own should certainly give you a really good update on where we are at the moment with phenotesting and asthma. So I will hand you over now to the talk. Hello, everybody, and um, welcome to uh, this week's um or this month's uh, NASGP educational webinar. Really delighted to be joined by um, by a- Andy Whittemore, who is a GP uh, in the next county along from, from our HQ in, in Portsmouth. Um, and Andy's been a GP partner there for 17 years. During that time, he's developed an interest in respiratory medicine and holds a number of uh, regional and national roles. And for the last seven years, um, has spent a couple of days a week as a clinical lead for Asthma and Lung UK um, and recently worked as NHS England's clinical champion for Pheno. But, so, Andrew, I, th- I think best to hand over to you now to explain what all that is and to uh, and, and hear from you. So thanks, Andy, for joining us. No, thank you very much for that introduction. So hopefully my screen is up and running. Um, I think I think the big thing that Richard just said was I developed the respiratory interest after joining general practice. I hated respiratory as a junior doctor. I hated doing medical school. But when I joined the practice I'm with now, they told me, well, everybody else has done it. We need somebody to do respiratory and get our cough coins up. So I put myself on a course, and, and the next thing I knew, I was the only person GP in the area who'd done a course, and I was there for the region expert in, in asthma and COPD, which sort of dumped me in it somewhat. Um, so sometimes it's a bit of a thankless task, and sometimes it is, is probably the, one of the best bits of the job I do. I currently split my week exactly in two. So half my week as a GP working um, in a large practice in Portsmouth, and the other half of my week, I'm clinical lead for Aspen Lung UK, which I've done for nearly eight years now. Um, happy to chat to anybody about the work I do there. But one of the things that that has led me to do recently is the last two to three years, I've been um, sort of clinical lead or clinical champion for the National Pheno Programme. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, because what happened was we, we know that they've got a technology out there called Pheno. And we knew it's been underused, especially in primary care. It's been in secondary care for a few years now. And the Accelerated Access Collaborative within NHS England, its job is to get technology rolled out further. So we, we sort of, they sort of got me on board to sort of support them with that. And I'll come on to what that national program is and, and the sort of bits that can help you in practice and, and, and general practice in general. So what I'm going to do today is talk a little bit about diagnosis of asthma how we um, treat asthma on the back of that, the National Seedone Programme, and then how we actually implemented Pheno in our practice in, in Portsmouth. And then some information about some of the outcomes that we saw as a result of that. Um, we've got plenty of time for questions at the end, so feel free to bone them in the chat or, or save them up and we can go through that as we need to. So talk about diagnosis of asthma, and just to take it really back to basics, the new diagnosis is that asthma is a condition with inflammation in the airways and narrowing of the small airways. 
And these symptoms usually, these problems are intermittent, which means that people get symptoms on and off through their year and through their life. And I tell my patients that with asthma, it can go away for weeks, it can go away for months, it can go away for years. But if, if you've got a diagnosis of asthma, it's always then in the background and may catch you out. And it can cause symptoms depending on people's individual um, triggers. And that might be as, as simple as this time of year, we're seeing lots to be with, with the change in weather and viruses causing problems. Other people is more allergic, so pollens, animals and things like that. And then there's more of the things within the body as well. So where stress and hormones can have an impact as well. And what we see with asthma is, is whatever those triggers are, they cause certain sort of markers within the body and then within the lungs to set off an inflammatory response in the lungs. And what we see there is that then that sets off messages that include um, chemicals such as nitric oxide, which we then breathe out in, in, in our breath. So there's lots of things that we can measure in the blood. So eosinophils, we can measure in the lungs, such as eosinophils and other markers of inflammation, various interleukins and things like that. But actually in the breath itself, we can then measure nitric oxide. I'm going to skip the video because it's not working with sound. So a question for you all just to ponder on, how good do you think we are actually at diagnosing asthma? And the reason I'm asking the question is because actually we're not very good. Um, one of the things that we've learned over the years and one research study over in Canada showed that about a third of the people that we give a diagnosis of asthma might not actually have it. And that was that paper, patients who were followed up long-term, given reversibility testing, um, challenge testing, and they found out that actually a third of people that we give a diagnosis of asthma to might not have it. The other thing I, I saw warn people about is on the other side of that, we actually don't recognize enough people who've got asthma. So it's massively under-recognized, not just by us, but by our patients who might get coughing and wheezing regularly and breathlessness, but put it down to a chest infection or a virus or part of getting older, or even the fact that they smoke. Um, but they just put it down to solve how they are, what normal is for them. And it's also under-recognized by cough. So if somebody with asthma hasn't had symptoms or, or had any medication for a year, they automatically come off the cough register, which means that you've got people who perhaps are going through a latent period with their asthma, who are then not getting an asthma annual, an annual asthma review, they're not getting preventative medication, and they drop off the system. And then that reinforces the, the I suppose, the, um, the fact that patients then start to under-recognize their symptoms as being related to something. So for those patients who are incorrectly diagnosed, it means that they're getting treatments that are expensive because not only do we put them on initial inhalers, but when that doesn't work, we put them on even stronger inhalers at an even higher cost. Those, those treatments can then have side effects, but of course, because they haven't got asthma, those treatments don't actually help. Now, on the other side of that, not actually getting treatment for the cause of their symptoms in the first place. When we're missing a diagnosis, it means that the patient's got untreated inflammation, they've got a risk there of getting symptoms, of getting asthma attacks, and a permanent decline in lung function. And of course, they might be on treatment for another condition, which again is causing them harm, not doing um, any sort of treatment for what symptoms they've got at the moment. And the reason asthma is difficult is because not only is it sort of, it's a variable condition, but Asthma symptoms are very common and non-specific. So people get a cough, they get a wheeze, they get breathlessness, and it's very easy to put it down to a viral infection or a bacterial infection or, or something else. But actually, what we see then is that we start to sort of don't delve in to try and see whether they've got an underlying condition such as asthma or, or COPD. 
And it's not just the symptoms that are variable, but the signs and the tests that we sort of examine for as well. And this is very many pitfalls through the treatment and management of asthma because actually if you um, are examining somebody who's taken cost of their, their blue ventilin inhaler within the last four hours, chances are their peak flow and their lungs are entirely normal, which means you might well miss what's actually going on and need to ask a lot more questions and be more inquisitive about how their lung health actually is. We also know that tests for asthma are not performed well enough. And that's just, that's patients who don't know how to do peak flows properly or don't do them very well or don't take a diary as we've, we've asked them to do. With spirometry, it's very poorly performed by patients and the clinicians often don't push and push to get the best results out of it. And even when they are good enough, those tests are not effective enough and actually helping us to, to diagnose asthma. Something I often, quite often direct other people to is having a look at these figures, and these figures are taken directly from the BTS sign guidelines um, evidence base. So it tells you basically what, what, how the sensitivity in the first column and the specificity in the second column are various things that we, we do with asthma. We do a lot of guesswork, and that is something I, th- I think we just need to take a step back and be very reflective of. When we diagnose asthma and when we treat asthma and when we're monitoring asthma, we are guessing a lot of the time. We're guessing whether those symptoms are accurately, de- accurately described to us. Um, we're you know, not always asking them correctly. We're not always sort of taking enough stock of what they say. But if we look at people who are relying on say, symptom scores and asthma, only two, two-thirds of those are sensitive enough for actually picking up asthma, and it's sort of very variable within that. When we look at some of the tests, if you look at the sensitivity in that first column there of spirometry, we are relying on spirometry for actually coming up with diagnosis of asthma and COPD, and, and those figures are, are quite stark in terms of um, how bad these tests are. And some of that is about how good the test is, but also how well it's performed by, by us in, in primary and even secondary care. Peak flow. Um, again, look at the dramatic low levels there of, of, of sensitivity. Um, so I think something that we shouldn't be relying on. Very good to try and get patients to do it as well as possible, but actually on their own, it's not perfect. And even though I'm here going to be talking about pheno and how great pheno is, you can see from those figures that pheno, again, isn't perfect. It might well be better than some of the other tests we've got available, but actually on its own, it's not good enough to come up with a diagnosis. I've talked a little bit about how the national program was a, was a very, very, very good thing for me. I've done lots of work with NHS England over the years, and most of it involves banging my head against a brick wall for hours and hours on end. With this program, we were actually given the freedom to do what we thought was best. And we were given complete freedom in terms of some of the things we wanted to do, some of the people we wanted to influence. And, and that made a massive difference to the success of the program. What we decided we wanted to do around Pheno was not just sell Pheno, because that was the, the main objection of the program, but what we wanted to do was improve asthma diagnosis. And the first thing we did was actually set up some sort of education programs and, and some, some healthcare professional support so that actually we could sort of take the asthma jigsaw to them. It isn't about Pheno, it's not about spirometry, it's not about everything else. It's about improving the picture that we've got so that we can be more confident and have lost less guesswork into providing somebody with a diagnosis of asthma. History and examination are central to that. You can't just take somebody off the street, do pheno, and tell them they've got asthma. You need a really 
good in-depth clinical history. You need an examination to sort of help support that. And then and it, so on here it says spirometry, but evidence of airflow obstruction, whether that's spirometry or, or peak flow, and then theno as well in that. And if you sort of cover those four boxes, you've got a very, a much clearer picture of what that jigsaw is actually looking at. You might still need a trial of treatment. And in some cases, you might still need to send somebody for specialist tests. But actually, if you can sort of get those fundamentals of history, examination, airflow obstruction, and phenome place, then you can actually be a lot more accurate with, with the diagnosis you're coming up with. One of the things that's confused people over the years is the fact that NICE and the BTS sign guidelines do contradict each other on how you should be diagnosing. BTS sign are written by clinicians who act very pragmatically. So actually they're looking at what happens in clinical practice. And one of the reasons they don't recommend Theno routinely is because they were aware it wasn't available to everybody in primary care. So the bit of a chicken and egg there. Whereas NICE has said that actually if you add Theno to the diagnostic algorithm, then you can really improve the quality of diagnosis and be more certain about who has and who hasn't got asthma. So what we did is we actually took the asthma guidelines from NICE and we tried to turn it into something usable. Because at the moment, the algorithm is very complicated. Lots of arrows going all over the place. Whereas actually what we want with adult diagnosis, this is we've covered in this right here, is you want a measure of airflow inflammation across the top there, airflow obstruction going down the side, and then seeing whether those two things come together and give you a certain diagnosis or whether it's more likely or whether it's more unlikely. Um, we'll be sharing these slides afterwards, so, so don't pay too much attention to this, but actually using that combination of CNO with airflow obstruction is, is a good way of, of sort of moving forwards. And that's with children as well. So a little bit less detail than now that any child who's got confirmed airflow obstruction doesn't need CNO testing as well, but it is useful. There are a few things out there which, which also influence pheno levels. So pheno levels go up with levels of nitric oxide. It is levels of nitric oxide. Allergic rhinitis would also increase your levels of nitric oxide, but so will having a viral illness, um, doing exercise, especially before doing a test, and having an intake of the high, which is high in nitrites, nitrates as well. There are other things that reduce the levels of pheno, and you just need to take a little bit of a... Uh, of this into account, so smoking, caffeine in hot drinks, especially just before doing the test. Not only people drink alcohol before doing these breathing tests, but actually just bear that in mind if they have. Um, and of course, um, taking inhaled or cortisol steroids will dramatically reduce airway inflammation due to eosinophils and nitric oxide. So I've talked a little bit about the national program. Um, I said the main thing was they actually let myself and Tom Brown, who's one of the clinicians from, from secondary care, to do what we felt was the most important thing. And we looked at steps, things that would support patients, it would support clinicians, it would support commissioners and people making decisions about whether to invest in and, and provide a service. In the toolkit, and I'll share the details of where that is later, we, we've got all those resources from from patient leaflets, through to a video explaining more about Theno for patients, through to um, business cases, through to accurate messages that you can share with patients, um, information that patients can do to prepare them for the procedure itself, um, and lots of other bits and pieces in there as well. So definitely worth paying a visit there. 
one of the key things we did was put together um, some training modules. And we did two training modules. One is for people performing a test because the test is so easy to perform. It can be performed by anybody with a very little bit of training. I could train any of you in five minutes to do it. But the important thing is how you communicate with patients. You understand where it fits into the whole pattern of diagnosing and, and taking it from there. So quite often we're seeing healthcare assistants, um, people who, are, who don't have a profession behind them doing it. So we, we set up the first training module to educate people about how to do the test, how to communicate with patients and just get the language right. See, so actually it was then seamless when they went from the technician place to whoever was actually doing the diagnosis. And because this was coming out around the sort of time of COVID, we were very, very careful to highlight this was an aerosol, a non-aerosol generating procedure. How it was safe to do, unlike like spirometry, how the test is really easy and how there is some cost-effective benefits to it. Um, and I say just supporting the whole team moving forward and using it. The second module we, we um, put together was more about how to interpret it. So there's more lots of case studies about how to use pheno as part of the diagnostic algorithm to put it together with the other tests and taking a good history. And it was really to be done by GPs, by consultants, by nurses, by physios, by pharmacists. So people who are in a position to actually make a diagnosis. The first module, as I said, really easy, very simple, very straightforward. Takes about 20 minutes to half an hour um, for somebody just going through it at their own pace. Um, there's a simple knowledge test at the end, and it's just really to check that you have taken in what's going on, but there isn't any pass-fail um, threshold along with that. The one on interpreting pheno, because it is around the diagnosis of asthma, we meant it made a, we set a level that people had to pass a test and get 80% to pass. It is extremely easy. If you don't happen to pass it, you can retake it at any time. And when we sort of got feedback from all the people who had been doing going through the program and doing the test, what we found is that probably about three quarters of people found it was acceptable and okay or excellent and very easy. We found about a quarter of people found it extremely difficult and said it was well bit out of their comfort zone. And when we delved into that, we found that was people who had been thrown into respiratory without any training or support and they didn't actually know what they were doing in the first place. As I said, we've got lots of other sort of resources there as well. So the leaflets in a variety of languages, um, also audio versions, accurate messages with links to how to prepare for the test and more about the test. And we've put together a video for patients as well, which is hosted on the Asper Alone UK website. Lots and lots of feedback. So Fino has been a game changer for some PCMs and practices. Um, in our own practice, we... The practice nurse I work with who's been in ASPA a long time is a trainer, so she's extremely experienced. She found that Fino challenged her. She didn't realise how often she was guessing with her clinical judgments and how often she was actually wrong. Um, so she had a bit of a crisis of confidence for a month or so and then learned to embrace Fino and start work with it. But what it really did highlight was how much we are probably getting wrong, even, even the good people. People who understand asthma and diagnosis were getting it wrong and actually how much we do rely on guesswork, unfortunately. So as part of the program, we had 33 national projects. They've all been written up now and they're all sort of collected and there's a repository of all those within the toolkit. Many phenotests were done and we examined whether they made a difference to people, whether they made a difference to clinicians, 
and also where there was cost benefit at all. I think one of the most dramatic outcomes from the project is we started to see that the ball started rolling. Practice started taking off CNO practice around and decided they wanted CNO. We had whole healthcare um, areas, so the whole of Yorkshire, the whole of Humberside, the whole of the Southwest, all adopted Fino across all their practices. And this meant that actually the manufacturers of the Fino devices actually started slashing their prices. They didn't need the high margins to actually get their machines out there. One of the reasons why NICE struggled with Fino initially was that it was the high cost of each test. And now we've seen that cost come down absolutely dramatically as a result of this program. So coming on to our own experience in our practice, we'd wanted Fino for a long time and this gave us a great opportunity to try and engage in it and try and invest in it. We knew that Fino was becoming mainstream and because we were coming out of COVID, people weren't doing spirometry. So we wanted something to help to pin our diagnoses on. We also knew over time this would improve the quality of the diagnosis as part of management and monitoring. It could also improve what we were doing there. And with morale in respiratory and, and across the edges being so low, actually providing this new test to help support them was a real good boost to their confidence as well. So the first thing we did was, unsurprisingly, we tapped into all the resources that they already. So went into the toolkit, we used the education, we had extra training from the manufacturers, we used the pathways and 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 the manufacturers actually supported our clinics in the first instance. We used the patient information leaflets, the Accurex, the Arden's templates, all to try and make sure that we were capturing the work we were doing as well as possible and make our lives as easy as possible. And we did a little bit of an audit of the first 300 or so patients. Firstly, one thing I'd say, spirometry is really hard for people to do. They take training, they take coaching, it can be quite, quite arduous and quite often they don't do it very, very well. We found that 97% of our patients could do Fino on the first visit with a little bit of coaching. The age range was very, very wide. It's very hard to get somebody under the age of 12 to do spirometry, although you can do it from the age of about seven or eight. With Fino, we were getting children as young as five doing it and with a, a lady aged 85 who managed it as well. And the range of Fino levels we came up with was, was less than five, so very, very low, up to 178. And just to come back to where, where diagnosis sits, so for adults, diagnosis any levels above 40 is abnormal, and for children above 35. And we found, when, when we sort of asked our, our clinical team whether it made a difference, 69% said it actually made a, a visible difference in, in terms of how they came up with a diagnosis. In a significant number, it also helped with decisions on medication as well. When we looked at what we've done with various patients, it supported us to increase or initiate um, inhaled cortic steroids in, in uh, just under 50 of them. But I think the most telling thing was it actually helped us to not start steroids in another group or to reduce or stop um, in a significant proportion as well. What Fino also did is because we're, we're able to assess whether somebody's got any evidence of airflow inflammation at the time, it gave us some the opportunity to have conversations with patients. So telling them about what the disease, what the test was going to be showing. So if we were telling them this test is going to show air, uh, evidence of airflow um, inflammation, it means that you're getting enough steroid or you're not getting enough steroid or you're going to need steroid or not, or not need steroid. Then what it did, it opened up the conversation. So actually patients were saying, you know what, I'm going to have to be honest with you. I've not been taking my inhaler properly. I've not been taking it regularly. And, and that was something that our team found very, very useful. 
even by telling what the test was going to show, the patients would open up and be honest about their own adherence and, and perhaps inhaler technique. A significant number of patients needed referral to another clinician. The main reason with this was we were showing an absence of air, airway inflammation when patients were getting chest symptoms. As I said in the beginning, asthma symptoms are not very specific. People get coughing, they get breathless for all sorts of reasons. And the default is to come to us and get change of prescription. The default for us is to increase their, their inhaled corticosteroids or change their medication. So actually what this was doing was saying this group of patients do not need that. They need another diagnosis looking at or they need another another set of tests doing. Very high levels, even though we could prove patients we can use our inhalers properly, led us to um, accelerate referrals into a severe asthma clinic. We got feedback from our team and um, most felt that actually spirometry was significantly harder than Athena um, to understand, to explain, but also to do. And also the numbers didn't seem to mean anything to patients with spirometry. Whereas with Theno, patients were coming back and asking what their numbers were in the same way that people might ask us what their blood pressure or cholesterol or um, HbA1c would be with other conditions. So actually it was really useful for the patients to actually engage in their condition and understand what was going on. As I said, it's very useful at starting discussions about whether they're using their aims correctly. And it really focused on consultation and gave us a proper objective measure that we could use and to help steer in the conversation. So very similar sort of feedback there. Um, one patient was significantly poor, what appeared very poorly controlled severe asthma, actually reflected on the results, even though he was using all the medication all the time, regularly and correctly when we showed him. He came and said, well, my, my, my low pheno probably means that my symptoms aren't due to asthma. Maybe there's something else. Maybe it's the anxiety that I think I've got. So actually patients are starting to sort of interrogate their own disease and their own um, behaviours to try and understand what the result means for them. And others have said it outlines to them that perhaps there is a benefit to using their inhalers regularly because it suppresses the inflammation and you can actually measure that on, on CNO. Similarly, when you're starting patients on treatment, when the, when the numbers then change after a few weeks, you can be more confident and the patient can be more confident at least we're doing the right thing for their disease. And similarly, we, we did that with other patients where we were reducing their inhaled steroids because it didn't sound like asthma and their phenols stayed low or, or, or stayed with the normal limits. So a couple of quick sort of case studies. Um, yeah, we've still got time to do this. So we had a seven-year-old girl who'd be getting persistent symptoms for three or four years. Because of her age, she hadn't really done much in the way of any, any objective measures to support her diagnosis. Some clinicians thought it was viral yeast, some thought it was asthma. She'd been given different inhalers over the years to try. Um, and her peak flows were pretty useless, actually. Mum was very reluctant to have medication because actually she didn't have much faith in the diagnosis, but also the process and the inhalers didn't seem to work when she was taking them. And by getting a pheno recording which showed a level of 83, which is high, so it's above sort of 35, then what it showed to mum is there was we, we were on the right lines and thinking that she might have asthma. And it actually allowed us to have that discussion about starting some medication, explaining that low-dose and alcohol steroids are actually safe and they're effective and they can make a big difference. And even with some scepticism, she then did that but came back and we could show a big improvement in that pheno level. So 19 is on the low side, so, so showing that we've suppressed the, the uh, acidophilic inflammation there. 
So in this case, it showed us that we, that we could get more effective use out of medications. We had greater engagement from the family. And then we were reducing potential harm for somebody stopping, stopping, starting and stopping medication over a, a period of years. Simna, another seven-year-old girl, um, she'd been on off-self-butamol for four years and seen, it seemed to help. She had a three-month trial of inhaled steroids, um, but the parents weren't sure whether it was any good, so they stopped it, which is reasonable, but they didn't do it with consultation with us. Then she came back in with a chest infection and mum said, well, could it be the asthma? She was unable to do peak flows consistently. Phenol level came out very low, even though she was asymptomatic. So whereas I think previously I would have been tempted to get another trial of treatment to see how things go and keep trying with peak flows, this gave me and the parents and, and the child confidence that actually asthma was less likely. So we didn't start in health court with steroids. We talked us all of the effects of having a virus and so on. Um, and we sort of managed to further from there. So in this case, we didn't prescribe an SA medication. We were confident she didn't have um, asthma. Now, this one was a seven-year-old boy. Uh, he had again chest symptoms since he was age one. He'd been diagnosed with asthma about that sort of time, um, based purely on his history. And over time, he kept coming in with his mum, and mum was saying his asthma isn't very good, he's getting symptoms. So we escalated him up to higher doses of steroids. We went on to combination therapy with serotide. We added Montelukast. When he came in and he felt the symptoms weren't very good, we were giving him prednisolone when he was unwell. Um, we in retrospect with viral symptoms. Because of his symptoms to be getting, it had gone through 49 salbutamol over six years, which is much more than we'd normally recommend. And when we sort of interrogated him a bit more and actually taking a good history is so important here, we found actually his main symptoms, he was getting breathless when he was playing football. Now, I'm not sure how many people here do football, but if I got you to run around in the pitch, especially today, I suspect most of you'd be quite breathless doing it, especially if you're playing competitively. It felt to us like there was a bit of a learned behaviour going on. Actually, when he was getting breathless, he was taking his sabbat, he was treating his asthma, and it was a bit of a vicious cycle there. His pheno, when he was symptomatic, was seven. So this could be that actually his medication is working really well and suppressing all his inflammation. Or it could be that he hasn't got asthma in the first place. What we decided to do is we sort of worked with mum and, and, and with the child as well, because he had a big investment in, in feeling well and was worried about his chest because he was told it could kill him if it wasn't looked after properly. We reduced his treatment and, and tried to sort of monitor how things were going on. After four weeks on the lower dose, his pheno hadn't gone up substantially. It's still well below where we'd, we'd be worried about it. Um, so anything sort of 13 above we'd be thinking might well be relevant to uh, having some inflammation. And that, that allowed us to, to go for a further reduction. So in this case, we managed to stop unnecessary medication. We were reducing the potential harm. And actually, if you look at how much time and money and medication was using, there was significant saving there in terms of, uh, of saving NHS resources. So overall, I think the benefits from FINA for primary care is actually we showed you can get a more accurate diagnosis of untreated eosinophilic inflammation. Machines, you can target treatments better. You're getting more bang for your buck in terms of the treatments you're giving out and there's less guesswork, so you're not wasting on people who perhaps don't need it. You've got more evidence when you're escalating or de-escalating medications. You can speed up deciding whether patients might benefit from referral for biologics if they've got significantly high phenol levels despite the treatments that you've given them. Um, and also considering whether 
different treatments or diagnostic changes for people who've got COPD as well was also something we came to. The biggest thing for us, it gave us greater certainty of what we were doing and actually allowed us our pace to have greater confidence in us and in the medication as well. We did some cost analysis of all the children that we looked at. So I think there's about 50, 51 patients here. And one of the reasons we did this for the, um, for the NHS England work was to, at the moment, there's this disincentive for primary care to invest in these tests. Primary care are not paid to do spirometry. They're not paid to do CNO. We're just paid to document that they've had it done and to to get it into, into co-op to actually give us the bonus points and that funding. But actually, we've got no investment in supporters actually doing these tests. And what we wanted to do was actually prove there's actually a cost benefit for primary care doing it. Saving costs from medication or admissions, that saves it for the whole system. It doesn't help primary care at all. But what we found when we just examined the paediatric cohort, and we're currently examining it for, for the rest of our patients as well, is actually in terms of the cotton staff savings in primary care, there was definitely a benefit to doing the note. So even though the most savings come from what you're saving in terms of medications and admissions and how the rest of the symptom of the system will benefit, what this showed was actually there was a, a, a small but definite benefit for the primary care. And actually the cost per test that we found came to just under £10. The cost per patient per staff savings, the average came out over £12. So actually there's definitely a benefit there, even if it's not massive. Something in my work with Astro Lung UK, we recently had commissioned some work from PricewaterhouseCoopers looking at the cost of respiratory diseases to the NHS and to the UK economy. And one of the findings from that was if we implemented CNO for diagnosis and monitoring across the whole NHS in England, then we would save almost £100 million, allowing us to opt to optimise asthma treatment in different ways as well. So, so hopefully these findings, not just from the local projects and what we've done at Portsdown, but also through the Price Waterhouse Cooper's work, is hopefully going to be able to influence um, not just the guidelines that come out next week from next year for the NICE and BTS, but also going to influence people who are deciding GP contracts and things like that. So actually we can then start to reward primary care for doing tests that will save the NHS money. I said all these slides will be available afterwards, but there's a couple of links there. One is to the Primary Care Respiratory Society, who are now hosting the Athena the Toolkit for us, and all the resources that I talked about, plus all the case studies of where it's been used, were actually hosted on there. And then the PricewaterhouseCoopers report is, is hosted on the Aspen Lung UK website. And I think we've got plenty of time now for questions. Um, so feel free. Thank you, Andrew. That was really, really interesting. Um, and we've, we've got one question so far from Wendy, but and, but anybody else, please do um, put your questions in, in the chat. But can I just ask you, one of my, one um, sort of fantasy, but, but in terms of GP locums working in lots and lots of different practices and coming to meetings like this, I think we can be in a very good position to spread best practice and and um do you think that the, the data now is 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 compelling and strong enough um and and you've obviously mentioned that the toolkit and resources from the website but do you think when as if i was a locoming in a practice and, and a practice wasn't using pheno testing and i was thinking actually this could be really good do i do i could i be confident in saying Look, if you're not, you don't, if you don't do pheno testing yet. It, I, it, it's it's a really good tool. Here's the website. I'd I highly recommend you kind of get on with it. Do you think that's robust enough at the moment? Yes, I do. 
Um, one of the things that we, 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 we regularly get challenged because of that, I think there's lots of reasons why Signal hasn't taken off. The main reason is funding. The second reason is when NICE suddenly announced it a few years ago, it was sort of thrown to GPs that you're doing a really bad job. Theo will improve things. You, you, the, the, your clinical judgment isn't, isn't good enough. Um, and the third thing is when, when I showed you those data tables, it showed that um, pheno sensitivity gets up to about 80%. So I get fed back from a lot of GPs saying, well, why are we doing this test if 20% are going to be wrong? And that's where I say, well, there's two things to that. If you look at actually how effective peak flow and spirometry is, pheno is better, but yes, not perfect. But secondly, it's about that jigsaw approach. You do need to look at history, examination, airflow obstruction and airway inflammation in all in combination. And even then you still need a trial of therapy sometimes. Yes, yeah, so it is triangulating it, isn't it? It's taking those different approaches and building up a, a richer picture. And the, uh, the, the other thing to say is what is going back probably about seven, eight, even ten years, there were there was um there, there were lots of little pilot sites testing out CEO. And one of the reasons it wasn't cost effective and didn't work very well is because they were doing it on everybody. What I think the question for Wendy is almost sort of hinting at that is actually if, if one of the problems if you, you can't do it for everybody for monitoring because what you find then is some people have actually got their, their, their levels suppressed so you're not actually proving anything. Oh, I think, Andy, you might have frozen or even um, while you're frozen, I'm going to read the question out in case people are watching the video. They might not be able to see it. But Wendy's asked, given that asthma is intermittent, is pheno still reliable for diagnosis when no asthma symptoms for a few months and tested during that this time? Would this give a false negative? In a lot of cases, we actually proved that it wasn't necessary and wouldn't help. So actually, we were saving the patient hassle. We we're looking at their rights, diagnosis and then taking it forwards. Okay, thanks. You actually you froze for a little bit there, but um, but yeah, I had a bit of an inset issue from the sound of it here. So yeah, bear with me. Blame it on storms. Storm on storms. Um, no, thank you for that. Got another question from from Shanaz. Um, Shanaz says, "Do you have to stop steroid inhalers before pheno testing? And if so, how long do you need uh, do you need to be off the inhaler for?" Okay, so so what I'm going to do is just to be fair to Wendy, I'm actually going to finish her. Yeah, so yeah. That's a little bit there. So you can get false negatives with, with Sino. Um, and if, if certainly if their inflammation's died down, whether their triggers aren't present or, or for whatever reason, then it's a, it comes back to me to the history. If you're strongly suspicious that they've got asthma and their symptoms have gone down and inflammation levels have gone down, then I think you, 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 it's basically waiting for the symptoms to occur and then repeating Sino at a later time. But if pheno is low and there's no evidence of airflow obstruction either, then it means that asthma is extremely unlikely. Um, so actually, it's about revisiting the diagnosis and considering what else it might be. If your history and examination still tells you this is likely to be asthma, then keep revisiting the question from time to time. You might need to revisit the pheno at a later date as well. In terms of Shadaz's point about do you need to stop steroid inhalers before pheno test for diagnosis, It's mixed, and at the moment, with all respiratory testing, spirometry, you know, there is usually a delay, delay for getting it done. And the asthma guidelines all suggest treat people's symptoms when they get them. So quite often, you've started on treatment before they've actually gone for the tests. 
it takes about four weeks for you to get the full benefit of, of the ICS to reduce pheno levels. So it might well be that if you do the test in, in that intermit, in, intermediate period, you still get a slightly raised level. But I think the thing is, if your phenome levels come back low and their symptoms seem to have disappeared, then it might well be worth reducing or stopping inhaler for, for, for a few weeks and then repeating the test then. So I hope that answers answers that question. Lovely, thank you. And and Chinas, we've got a couple of follow-up questions. Do you have to include the ACT score and how accurate is this? And then many people also, um, Chinas also asked, many people have hay fever and allergies, so how do you interpret the pheno result, I guess, in that context? So the ACT score is measuring symptoms. Um, and I think when, when it comes to diagnosis, the ACT score isn't relevant because you don't know whether or not you need to prove whether they've got inflammation and obstruction and then use the ACT. I generally use the ACT for monitoring symptoms. If somebody's got poorly controlled asthma, so you know they've got the diagnosis and their ACT score is is reducing, then using pheno to prove whether those symptoms are truly due to asthma or not can be quite useful. Um, so, so they're looking at different things. So, so use them in combination to know what your clinical history is telling you and, and the point on the patient journey that they're at. In terms of allergies, especially rhinitis, you do need to be careful. So if a patient is, is, is getting both chest and nasal symptoms, you might need to take a, a view on which one you treat first and what, what you're going to measure as results. If you're persistently getting high levels of pheno and you've treated their chest, then, then obviously treat the, the, the nasal symptoms as well. So, so yeah, in, in combination, sort of consider both, but you might just need to sometimes just put your finger in the air and just say, I don't know which one is causing it, but this is the one I think. And again, that comes then down to, to history and examination, either getting predominantly chest symptoms or predominantly nasal symptoms. Lovely, thank you, Shanaz. I hope that, that that helps answer your your question. Shanaz uh, so says, "Safino used to diagnose and monitor asthma." Okay, thank yeah. You. So the national program was used to diagnose asthma, um, but a lot of the sites were using it to monitor as well. Um, I said the previous pilot sites going so going back a few years basically proved it wasn't cost effective to monitor everybody. And as we've had some questions so far, if somebody's not got any symptoms, chances are they haven't got any inflammation. So there's nothing really worth testing there. If they're getting symptoms and they're poorly controlled or they're on very high levels of medication and you want the confidence to help reduce it, then then sometimes it can be useful, well, it can be useful to use female to help, help reduce. Oh, lovely, thank you. And anybody on the chat at all got 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 any of their own experiences of using pheno has, has anybody been using it have they found it useful has it changed the way they practice or prescribe um or, or any any other tips or feedback for andrew at all um if anybody has put something in the chat and i'll call you through um but if not then otherwise i think we've done perfectly in sticking to our 45 minutes um, Andrew, is there anything else more you'd like to add that, that you want to, to elaborate on at all before we go? No, I'm, I, I think I covered everything. I was hoping to get time to cover some new changes in terms of treating asthma, but maybe that's for another time. Um, there was some research out recently showing that, so for people who are familiar with MART inhalers, where you use for motrol containing ICS inhaler, it's a useful way in helping to manage people with, with, with um, asthma symptoms. 
there is no evidence showing that actually it can be used first line at diagnosis and in people with mild asthma. So people using intermittent MART effectively, so without the maintenance bit, and using that regularly to help monitor, sort of maintain control of their symptoms. So you can be seeing a lot more of that with articles in the BMJ and guidance and local guidelines coming in soon. Um, but yeah, a lot lots coming in that direction shortly. Well, that sounds like a promise. Then it sounds like we should get you back and do maybe do a uh, um, and talk talk more about this because obviously it's such a, a, a common presentation and something we deal with so much in general practice. And, and and as I think often as locums as well, we're seeing those acute presentations and often seeing um, follow ups as well. So it would be that that could be really good. Um, Anna has said very helpful. Thank you very much. And um, Shanaz has also said thank you as well. Um, oh, thank you. So. Andy, thank you so much for coming along. Really appreciate you spending this time and um, devoting your lunch hour um, and, and talking to us today. It's all being videoed. It'll be out on YouTube um, and we'll be able to share, share it much wider with colleagues. Um, so uh, thank you very much. And thank you very much, everyone, as, as well, coming along as well. Look out for um, the email digest on Monday. Um, we'll be sending you some updates about the, the, the next talks we're going to be having. And um, yeah, see you all soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.